The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's take our Bibles now and open to Revelation chapter 2. Our study this morning is part 3 of the sermon we began a few weeks ago, uh, which is the church under fire. This refers to the church at Smyrna, which is the second of the seven churches of Asia. And the Lord wrote this church a letter, and the text of it is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. So if you found that text, we want to read this letter once again. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse number 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. The church in Smyrna was the second along the postal route of the divine messenger. And you remember that these seven churches are were in the western part of what is today Turkey. And Smyrna was in the province that was known as Ionia. The churches that we read about in Revelation 2 and 3 were active congregations at the end of the first century. And each of these letters gives a spiritual glimpse into the condition of churches at that time. This is about 60 years after our Lord was crucified. It's within about 30 years of the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry, and he had a ministry in this area as he traveled on his missionary journeys. And the condition of these churches shows the great problem of maintaining a healthy church in the midst of persecution. And that's been true since the beginning of Christianity, and it's no great wonder why we see many, many churches in apostasy today because the devil has made it his number one goal to stamp out the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gospel spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire, reaching a very diverse population of Jews and Romans, pagans, barbarians, and nationalities. And the testimony of the power of the gospel to convert sinners is incontrovertible. As the Apostle Paul said in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all people. The first letter goes to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital of the region. The church at Ephesus was what I, what I think may be called a, a flagship church of the seven. And Paul invested a great deal of his ministry in the Ephesian church, establishing them in the doctrines of the faith, giving them a very strong doctrinal foundation, which is reflected in the New Testament letter of Ephesians. And Ephesians stands as uh, one of the two great doctrinal letters, the two most important letters of the New Testament, I believe, and that is Romans and Ephesians. Now, the second church to receive a letter is the church at Smyrna, 
And each of these churches are tied together with this little phrase that comes at the end of each of the letters, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And the good news for the church in Smyrna is that the Lord has no warnings for them. There are no words of rebuke in this letter, but they are commended for their steadfastness in times of terrible trials. And so rather than to rebuke them, the Lord gives them words of comfort and encouragement and strength to keep standing for Him. And so He reminds them, first of all, of the power of Christ. He is the Christ. Christ means the anointed of God, and Jesus Christ is the anointed, omnipotent God, possessing all the power of the Godhead. And so using a quotation that comes from the Old Testament, Jesus referred to the exclusivity of the one God who created all things when He said, I am the first and the last. And that quotation coming out of Isaiah, Isaiah ends with this, Beside me there is no God, or literally, beside me, no God. So first and last is an expression of eternality. Jesus was before all things, and by Him all things consist. And that was very important encouragement to Smyrna, because it was a city that had no rivals in the extent of their pagan worship. They're the first to worship the emperor Tiberius. They were the first to worship Rome as a city. They were legendary for this ring of beautiful temples that stood above their harbor. And so Christians in Smyrna were relentlessly persecuted because they threatened that idol worship. The city wasn't too keen about losing the favor of Rome by people being converted to Christianity who would no longer worship the gods of Rome. So Christians honored God's first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so the Christians in Smyrna needed to hear this, that they're being supported by the one true God, the one who is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the world. That includes the Roman Empire under which they live. Now, in the last message, we, we began to look a little closer at this second area, and that is the persecution of the church, what, what they went through. A city that was in love with idols, in love with the emperor, in love with Rome's acclaim, had no patience for for Christians whose faith in the one true God was the radical antithesis of everything that they stood for. And so we started to look then at the tribulation of that church, the testing of tribulation. The persecution wasn't occasional. It came from all sides. And the Lord took care here to emphasize one exceptional group of persecutors found in verse number 9. These are the Jews. These are people who should have embraced the Messiah when he came, but rather they were the avowed enemies of Christ from the very beginning. It was the Jews that instigated the false charges against Jesus that forced the hand of Pilate to crucify him. Political expediency moved Pilate because the Jews threatened the peace if he did not kill Jesus. So the Jews expected that if we can just get rid of Jesus, then we can get rid of Christianity, get rid of Him, and it's done with, and we don't need to deal with this any longer. But the Jews didn't count on this. The resurrection. They didn't count the resurrection. Jesus told them, don't count me out. They would crucify Him, and then He would arise 
in three days. And it is the resurrection that energized his people, and it's still the resurrection today that makes Christianity unique, and it is the sure hope of every believer. Now, it's hard to kill a religion when people who believe it don't fear death. It's hard to get rid of them when you threaten them with death every day, but you can't scare them with death. Christians believe that we're going to live forever. Death is not the end. Death is just another passing phase that we go through. As I explained in the sermon the last time, uh, we are, uh, as Christians, we are alive, and then we're dead. We go through a phase, and then we're alive again. So death is just a phase that we go through. And if you have a religion that says you're not going to stay dead, who can top that? But the Jews wouldn't convert, and they relentlessly tried to destroy Christians. At first, they're the most avid of persecutors. They killed Jesus, and they martyred Stephen. And then they relentlessly pursued Paul from place to place, wherever he went. They were trying to stop Paul, and they tried to kill him on numerous occasions. And so the Lord hit hard at the Jews in verse number 9, calling them the synagogue of Satan. That is, he doesn't recognize the Jews as his people. They are the worst. And, and the Lord counted their offenses as the worst because of their enlightenment as the unique people of God. These are the ones who are given the law of God to point them to Jesus Christ. Now, I wish I had time to explore that more, but for your own reading, you might want to write down Romans 2, verses 17 to 24, where Paul ends that section by saying to the Jews, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. In other words, you are the cause for Gentiles who blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. And that was true in Smyrna. The Jews were chief among aiding pagans against God, while at the same time claiming they were the servants of God. And so Jesus said, no, you are the synagogue of Satan. You're the gathering of Satan's people, not mine. Now let me tell you that everything that I've just said, and I want to caution you about this, this is not given because of anti-Semitism. This is given to you because it's history. There isn't anyone who can make a valid claim that we are anti-Semitic because we just relate the biblical history of the Jews. In fact, because... We believe that God has an intention to restore the Jews into his eternal kingdom. We, as American evangelical Christians, are the strongest supporters of Jews and Israel in the world. So we're not anti-Semitic in any case. We are just relating the history of this in that time. We fully expect that Christ will come back and restore the Jewish people into a kingdom. Now today, then, the tables are flipped on the Jews. They and Christians are the most persecuted. The Jews never find lasting support among Gentiles, and neither do Christians find any support in the world. And so the Jews gain nothing by joining with Gentiles against Christianity. So Jesus used this term synagogue as a rebuke of judgment against them for what they did to Christians in Smyrna. And to the Christians, he says, I know your tribulations. And that word tribulations means affliction. Literally, it means pressure. Pressure like being crushed beneath a massive weight. And I would think daily threats against your life would qualify as a massive weight. Imagine if every night you went to sleep with one eye open. Or when you walked out into the streets, every street that you walked down, 
you must keep looking over your shoulder. Imagine expecting that any moment someone might break into your house, break down your door, and take away everything that you own. So what do you do? Where are you going to get justice? Do you go to the government and say they shouldn't do this? You can't go to them because the government encourages it. And all your neighbors are willing spies to find out if you are a Christian and then turn you in. That's terrible pressure. Now another word we find in the text is significance. Uh, significant, it's the word poverty. Notice that in verse number 9. Now, we think that we know this word, poverty. Yes, we know that, but this word is not what we think. Our English translation says poverty. But the English translation doesn't do justice to the original word because there are two words in Greek for poverty. The first one means in the sense of a man who must work for a living. That is, somebody who must labor using manual labor, opposing to be, uh, opposed to being a wealthy man who doesn't do manual labor. So poverty in that sense is simply a person who lives hand to mouth. And maybe there were some of you that we could say, well, yes, you're kind of living in poverty because you live by the weekly paycheck. It's what you get today, and, and uh, that's what you've got to have. You've got to be paid for this week's work. That's a man who lives hand-to-mouth. He's not wealthy by any stretch, but he does have something. He's able to get along. But the second word is a demonstration of the wide social gap that existed in the first century. Now, we'll use terms like the haves and the have-nots, but in Greek, the have-nots is not metaphorical. It literally means they have not. They don't have anything. They're destitute. This is, that first word is, is somebody doesn't have very much, he doesn't have anything extra, but the second word is for those who have zero. They don't have anything. And this is one of the most peculiar aspects of this religion that swept the empire. It promised no prosperity for those that embraced it. Now, do you understand that? Christianity promises no prosperity. It's a false gospel. It's a wildly false gospel that promises financial reward for faith. You don't find that in the Bible. That's not biblical teaching. How many times did Jesus and the apostles speak of poverty? And did you know this, that when Jesus and the apostles used this word poverty, the one that they most often used was the one of being destitute. That Christians will have nothing that you must beg to get by. And so Christianity spread among the lowest classes of society, not because there was a promise of wealth in it. Christianity is not pie in the sky. It promises poverty with a topping of persecution. And it promises more than just being the lowest on the social scale, but along with it comes the intended confiscation of everything that you have, and there's no social improvement. So how are you going to sell a religion like that? How do you get people to believe something that does this? Now, the prosperity gospel that's preached today offers the opposite, and the poor grab it, never getting any eternal gain because their wealth or their their faith is in the wealth of this world. Christians in Smyrna rejected the wealth of this world in order for the eternal wealth of Jesus Christ. His wealth is not the wealth of the world. It is eternal wealth. Eternal, or the wealth of this world corrupts. So how is it then that this religion that has 
no hope of improving people materially. There's no promise of friendliness and peace with the world, with others, with no promise of parties and vacation. How does a religion like that, that promises perpetual poverty and persecution, how does that sweep the empire and cannot be destroyed? This looks like the easiest thing to get rid of. Get rid of Christians because there's no hope in that religion, is there? Nobody's rich there. This is made up of poor people who have nothing. Why is that so hard to stamp out? Well, it's only for one reason. God. Only because of God. Because God changes hearts. Because God illumines the mind and allows us to see through the smoke and the haze and the clouds of carnal desire to the eternal value of its precepts. So Christians see an investment with eternal dividends. We don't look for a payday today. We look for the hope of tomorrow where we rest from all of our labors and we enjoy the riches of an eternal God. So do you know what they heard in the gospel? That the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, told them something else. Revelation 21, verses 6 to 8. And he said unto me, John writes, He said unto me, and Jesus said, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Hold on to that phrase, the second death. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. Now secondly, we go on to the time of tribulation. Verse number 10 again, For none of those things which thou shalt suffer, uh, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Revelation is... One of the hardest books of the Bible to interpret. I talked about Song of Solomon a moment ago. Revelation is probably equally as hard to interpret. There are all kinds of things that people say about it and interpretations they give. And this particular text is a very highly debatable text. What does Jesus mean with the reference to their time of tribulation? Wide and varied are the interpretations of it. Some believe it means ten years. After ten years, it's going to be over. Some say it means ten different periods under ten different emperors. And then there are still others who say, no, it means ten literal days. I'm all in favor of literal interpretations wherever possible. I don't see how that works here. They received a letter on a specific day. It's at the end of the first century. And is it the Lord's intention to say to them that next week, in one and a half weeks, in ten days from now, all your troubles are going to be over? Well, that, that doesn't seem to fit here. But rather, it seems that the Lord emphasizes a time limit. That there's no one who controls the time of their persecution but Him. When it exists, He allows it. And when He's through with His purpose, He shuts it off. Emperors are not in control. He is. He's the first and the last. He's the eternal one who has a purpose. And that purpose is not contingent upon what anybody does. He's the one who's in control of it. 
And I do wish that more people understood this about salvation. There are too many people that have a God that waits on them. That he doesn't do anything until we act. They don't believe that God's in control of all decisions. You know that makes an enormous difference in your worldview. When God controls things instead of you, that makes a complete difference in your outlook on life. There's no hope in Smyrna if men make decisions, not God, because the world will forever persecute Christians until God does something about it. And so you need to know this in your trials, that there is a time limit on your sorrows. It's going to be tough, and the pressure mounts, and you wonder sometimes, how am I going to survive? How am I going to get through this? Where am I going to live? Who's going to take care of me? And then you realize, after you've said all of that, you're still here. You're still here. God, God's done something, hasn't he? And so you look back on your hard times and you say, God feeds sparrows, and I'm much more valuable than sparrows, aren't I? So there's a time limit. Tim days is much like what Paul said at the end of Romans. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. What, is, what does Paul mean? Life is short. Time is short. And we need to focus on the eternal because we are children that have an inheritance that changes our economic status forever. It changes our social status forever. And more importantly, it changes our hope forever. Our hope is realized so that we no longer need to hope any longer to keep us going. Our ten days will be over, and then our hope is realized. And I want you to see, this is the exact way that Christ ends this letter. It's with the hope. He has no complaint against them. Perhaps they've received this letter when the thread, the last thread that holds them together was frayed and ready to break. And so the encouragement comes to them, hold on a little bit longer. And if they do, what will happen to them? If they'll just hold on longer, what happens? Well, thirdly, we see, is their promotion. The promotion of Christians. Again, in verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. No doubt suffering is hard. Some of you suffer. But none of you suffer as they did. Now, I know that that doesn't seem to help you too much. That doesn't help your problem to commiserate with them in their suffering. It doesn't help you to know they suffered, does it? But that's what faith is about. Faith is accompanied by hope, and hope drives us to endurance. Back to Romans in chapter 8. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. I don't suppose there's a more frequent question than why do Christians suffer. I have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. I thought this was going to be easy now. Why do Christians suffer? And today's popular preaching says suffering's unnecessary. God doesn't want you to suffer. You don't have to. You don't have to live that way. Well, they might as well preach that God doesn't want you to live in hope. What do you hope for if you've already got your hope? 
So we can't reach any other conclusion from reading this scripture that suffering is intended. Just, just look at the text. For none fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. You will suffer. It's coming. And God hasn't seen fit to prevent it. So by the word of God, we know we will suffer. But that doesn't stop us from asking why. Why does it happen? Well, some suffering is because of sin. The church at Corinth suffered because of their sin and they were chastised. That's not the reason in Smyrna. Peter said that there are some that will suffer as evildoers. That's not the problem in Smyrna. Some people suffer because they need to be taught humility. None less than the great apostle Paul suffered because of an amazing revelation that he'd seen from God. He was taken up into heaven to see things that he could not tell. And then he said, because I saw that, God allowed me to have a thorn in the flesh to buffet me. And that word buffet, that's an interesting one. That, that's the Greek word kofizo, which actually means to box the ears. To beat you up. Hit with the fist. And he said, this is done so that I would not be exalted above measure, that I would not be prideful because I'm the only one that God ever gave this vision to. Sometimes God gives suffering to educate. There's a lesson to be learned that God doesn't teach in any other way. It may be greater dependence on him. That could be the reason for suffering in Smyrna. But... I believe that this last reason for suffering might be the right one in this place. That suffering is also a means of testimony. All Christians suffer to some degree. The Smyrna church has a testimony that the worst that you can suffer can be endured. That it's a testimony to Christians, Christians everywhere, that if you hold out faithful, you receive God's commendation. Now we don't much recognize that in our country today because as I've said so many times we just we just not well acquainted with what it really means to suffer not because of what we believe maybe a little but not very much but you think about other parts of the world that do look exactly like Smyrna Christians some of them are living in deep poverty some of them are hiding out because they are Christians they don't know what's going to happen to them next do they need to look at this text to find hope? That God is with us in persecution, that in our trials He never deserts us, that when you hold out faithful, your faith is strengthened, and also is the faith of others who look to you to see what you will do in your times of trouble. And so when you hold out faithful, when you're that testimony of faith, others look to you, and that drives Christians closer together to know we can make it through. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians, and I want to show this to you along with the expectation that comes out of suffering. We know that suffering draws us together. I see that every week on Wednesday nights. We have a prayer page, and as those prayer requests are presented, we, we, we empathize with those who are there. We rejoice with those that have good news, and we, we weep with those that receive the bad news. Now look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and let's see how Paul commends the Thessalonian church. In verse number 3, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, 
as it is meet, or that's fitting, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. So that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Now surely he does intend that verse 3 is connected to verse 4. Their faith and patience and tribulation drove them towards more love for each other. That's encouragement for other churches. Now look at verse 5. What are the persecutions for? Which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. So a trial of faith endured proves that you are worthy of God's kingdom. Understand what that means. You're not worthy because you have earned the kingdom. You are worthy because your faith is proved to be from the Lord. You see, faith from the Lord produces perseverance, the endurance. It shows that the Lord has made you worthy. And then next comes the reward for endurance in verse 6 through 10. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Now you take that, keep that in mind with what Paul says in Romans 16.20. In a brief time, the Lord will bruise Satan under your feet. Now, now that we've got that text in mind, we return to uh, our, our text in Revelation. And we see then the expectation of our prize. The last part of verse 10 says, I will give thee a crown of life. Is it wrong to serve Christ for reward? Some say so. They say, you ought to serve Christ because you're grateful. Serve Christ because you love him. You forget about serving him for reward because that means the motive is bad. Might I just ask, did they know more than God? He told us to serve him for reward. He said, lay up treasures in heaven. He said, the workman and the work is worthy of the reward. None of that precludes gratefulness and love. So God put this incentive in front of us. So why would anybody say, don't serve God for rewards? No, there's a prize that's coming, and there's nothing wrong with expecting it. Our chief reward, of course, is eternal life in heaven with God, life in Christ. That's a reward that nobody can top. But it seems God can top it, because he promises even more. He, he promises that rewards are abundant, that his blessings are unmatched, that riches are added to it. There's an eternal inheritance that's added on top of eternal life. So what's the purpose of him talking about reward here? It's a contrast to the deep poverty of verse number 9. Now look at the parenthetical phrase of verse number 9. It says, but thou art rich. I know your poverty. I know that you're destitute. But did you know that you're rich? Why are they rich? Because your rewards are mounting up. 
Every act of faith receives a just recompense of reward. What they say? What, what do you mean, Lord? There's an inheritance waiting. First, because they have been adopted by God. They're in His family. They are children of the King. Romans 8, 16 and 17, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be what? That we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Then they are also rich because of their labors. They endured, they remained faithful. And that showed that they built a spiritual house of gold. 1 Corinthians 3.14 If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And so it is that abiding work that merits a reward. We never merit salvation by our labors, but we merit the addition of rewards by our faithfulness. That's the incentive for service. The Lord offers that, and we can expect it. Now, I like this statement by William Barclay. He wrote, Jesus Christ will be in no one's debt, and loyalty to him brings its own reward. So Jesus said, those that end well will receive a crown of life. Now let's think again about how Jesus referenced the heathen culture of Smyrna, and then he counters that with the Christian viewpoint. We've seen it before. In the phrase, first and last, quoted from Isaiah, that ends with, beside me there is no God. That counters emperor worship and the worship of pagan deities. Secondly, he said, I was dead and now I'm alive. That counters the Jewish and pagan beliefs that if you kill Christians, that, that's the end. They're, they're dead, and dead is dead. They're gone. Thirdly, he says, I know you're poverty, but you're rich. That is the temporal worldview in Smyrna versus the heavenly view of Christians. Fourthly, he says, the synagogue of Satan. That's a Jewish reference countering the Jews' belief that they alone are God's children. And now we come to this fifth example it's the crown that we receive. It is the Stephanos of life. Why this choice of this particular Greek word, Stephanos, where it says crown? Well, that's to contrast something. Jesus counters the Jews and pagans of Smyrna with this word, how? Well, there are two words for crown in Greek. The first is diadema which means a royal crown. And in the New Testament, that word is never used as a crown that goes on the head of a Christian. We see it on the head of Christ in Revelation 19.12. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, diadema. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Now each time, though, that we see a crown for believers, where you see crown of life, and you'll see crown of glory, you will see a crown of righteousness. It's the word Stephanos. And that's a crown that means like a garland wreath, like those that are given to winners at the Olympic Games, the ancient Olympic Games. Christians are not given a royal crown. In fact, it says that we're going to be a diadem of glory, a diadem of glory in the hand of the Lord. The royal crown belongs to Jesus. In Revelation 4.10, it says, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. 
Now the crown that believers wear in heaven is not diadema, it is Stephanos. So why does the word Stephanos stand out in our text? Well, this is just remarkable the way that the Lord compares these things and contrasts what Christians will receive versus what they frequently saw in Smyrna. You see, it was customary for pagans at their temples to place a crown, a wreath of garland on their heads as they went up to worship in their temples. Of Smyrna and Christians had seen that many times because that city is filled with idol worship, filled with temples. They saw it many times. And the next time that they would see it after reading this letter, it would cast in their minds an image of appearing in the temple of God in heaven with a crown. A crown that only the one true living God can give them. This is the crown of life. And so Smyrna and Christians may be martyred, but there's no concern for that. A martyred Christian enters Christ's temple with the crown. And he lives forever in the glory of that one who was dead and is now alive. I'm not much for the ancient art that's found in cathedrals with pictures of saints. But have you ever wondered why when you see those that there's always this glow painted behind their heads? You've seen that? Always a glow between the, behind the head of a saint. Obviously that's something not visible as they walked on the earth. And so there are many scholars who believe that that halo was added with the crown of Christians in mind. The Smyrna Christians saw it many times as heathens went into their temples. And so it was an interesting contrast and a source of great hope that poor persecuted Christians would have a crown of victory to wear in the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is there better hope than this? They endured poverty and persecution in expectation of this prize. Now finally, is the confirmation of our position. Verse 11, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. He that overcometh. That does not mean some will not overcome, because every Christian is an overcomer. First John 5, 5 says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? As a believer, you are secure in your position. Now let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. In this letter, he's headed for martyrdom. It won't be long. Was he concerned about what would happen? He knows this is coming. Is he concerned about it? Did he warn other Christians, what you need to do is to do your very best to avoid suffering. Don't end up like me. Don't end up in prison. Avoid suffering. Do everything to lessen your efforts for Christ to avoid suffering. In Revelation 2, Jesus said, some of you are going to be cast into prison. Paul doesn't say, watch out for that, stay away from it. But this is what Paul the martyr says in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 12. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid of prison. Be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death. I'm the first and the last. 
I was dead, but I was alive. He has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed, Paul says, I am a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause? Because I did those things, I suffer all these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Outstanding devotion. God always keeps what you have committed to him against that day. You know why I, one of the reasons I chose Romans 8, 28 to 39 for our opening reading today, the, the, the call to worship? It's because of this very thing. And the end of that, it's the hope that no matter what happens to us, our position in Jesus Christ is firm. There's nothing that separates us from the love of Jesus Christ. God's always going to keep what you've committed against that day. What day is it? That's the day that Jesus comes to get you. It might be the day that could happen right now that Jesus comes back and receives you up into glory. That's the beginning of the end. Or it may mean, or it could be, the day that you die. The day that ends your life on this earth. Christ takes you in death. It doesn't matter. He made a promise to you that he'll keep you. What does the Lord promise? You're not going to be hurt with a second death. And I'll promise you this, that if you do not become a Christian because you're afraid of persecution, and you're afraid of poverty, and you're afraid of death, if you fear those things more than you do the destiny of your eternal soul, then you will experience the second death. That's more than physical death. This is another death. You will receive the second death. So what is the second death? Good question, isn't it? Turn to Revelation 20, verse 14. And you want to mark this down, you want to underline, put a circle around it. Make sure that you don't miss this one. The first death, how you die and leave this world, that could be excruciatingly painful. But it doesn't touch this. Revelation 20:14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. If you die the first death without Christ, you immediately go to this. Into a burning hell, then to judgment, and then to eternal suffering in the lake of fire. Now, here is Jesus' last contrast in this passage. It's been full of contrast. Christian's viewpoint versus the world's viewpoint. And this last one is that believers in Smyrna may indeed go into the flames of martyrdom as Polycarp that we talked about last, the last time. They may indeed go into the flames of that persecution. They may be burned for not confessing that Caesar is Lord. But their next step is a crown of life. But on the other hand, the Jews and the pagans may escape the fire here. And they may go up wearing their wreaths into the temples of their God. But when they die, they're going to everlasting contempt in the fires of hell. And their death is not temporary, not like that of Christians. There is not a person who dies without Jesus Christ who ever says this, I was dead, but now I am alive. That never happens. Because a person without Jesus Christ dies one death and goes to a worst second death. Do you understand why that it's no mystery why Christians were, Christianity is attractive to the lowest in society, this is the greatest hope they can have. 
There's this wide gap, a wide disparity. They're not going to gain anything in this life, but their eyes have been opened to the gospel to understand they will receive a reward. It's risk versus reward, and the risk is give all to Christ and receive all from Him forever. That's risk versus reward. So what are you willing to do? Would you be willing to trade all of life's uncertainty for this sure hope that there is a reward in Christ? If you trust Him, He says, that position is secure. You're never going to see the second death. One death, and then promotion to glory. If you have ears to hear, if God has given you understanding, then take heed to what the Spirit says to the churches. Trust in Jesus Christ. You'll die, but then you'll live again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. The encouragement that we receive from it. Life seems so hard many, many times. We think that we're just not going to be able to make th get through it. But it doesn't really matter what happens here. Though we are concerned because we live in the flesh, yet we know that you are greater than our flesh, you are greater than government, you are greater than all things, and you have promised an eternal inheritance for those who trust you. I do pray, Lord, that you would open the heart of someone today to see that truth. And we know this, Lord, nobody, I can't do it, nobody can do it, we cannot convince lost people to believe this. Nobody wants to put off what they can have now for something that they can't see. That takes faith and only you can give it. Lord, we expect that your Holy Spirit will open the eyes of lost sinners today to see that truth. Receive Jesus Christ. Give up the world. Accept him and receive eternal life. Bless us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.